Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Dr. Christiane Michaelberger on the show. She is a retired physician psychoanalyst, and past spiritual seeker who currently mentors seekers in their quest to awaken. Over 10,000 hours of meditation and 40 years of studying Buddhist scriptures didn't stop her from having a debilitating fear when she found out she had breast cancer. She wasn't able to cope and questioned whether everything she had done up until that point was a complete lie. She discovered a book that led her to one simple question. That one question led to a true awakening. She realized she was spiritually sleepwalking. She had replaced one illusion for another. But this was only the first step. In her book, Finding Awakening, she shares her no-nonsense journey beyond the self to peace and freedom. Her mission is to put an end to all suffering. Welcome to the show, Christiane. Welcome and thank you for having me, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, everybody. New PSA for the second half of April. If you have not yet subscribed to my newsletter, please do so at dramyrobbins.com. You can just find all the information you need there to subscribe. You can also subscribe through uh, Instagram now at Dr. Amy Robbins, and I'm going to be on this new app called Fireside. It is an app where you can listen to the podcast live and ask questions. So it's an audience participation app. It is in beta right now, but I'm super excited to have been brought on as one of their first creators. So if you are interested in following me over there, uh, like I said, it's in beta, so it might take a couple of days for you to get approved, but all you have to do is go to www.firesidechat.com slash Amy Robbins, and I will link to that in my show notes as well, and this will give you the opportunity to engage with my guests, and I'll start promoting my guests uh, as I'm getting ready to record the episode, you'll still have available the ability to listen to episodes after the fact, the same way you're listening to them now. But this is a great chance for you all to get on board and speak to the amazing guests that I have on the show. So again, DM me if you have any questions on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. So you are going to air in a series that I'm doing around how our sort of emotional health and thinking affects our physical health. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, can you tell us about your journey? Because I think it's so important. And so many people think if I am as sort of spiritually healthy as possible, then maybe I can avoid disease. Oh, well, Ramana Maharshi died of skin cancer. Um, I don't think that is possible. <laughs> and actually, after my awakening, I had two more cancers. So um, <laughs> one friend of mine uh, who also is at the end of her journey and she got a very, um, yeah, very rare disease. Her, um, she has a complete 
suprarenal failure. That means she doesn't produce any cortisol at all any longer. And you can't live like that. And the substitution is very complicated, leading to new diseases. And she always says, I think my karma has to burn up somehow in this life because there will be no other one. (laughs) So what was your journey? Tell us about that. So it started when I was really young with... 25, I was in my first year uh, residency in the hospital, and I just rotated uh, through surgery at that point. And so I had to be uh, with every shift, night shift, everything, but I had always a background, so if there was any question, I could ask them. And then this call came in like at 9 p.m., um, uh, the receptionist called and said the ambulance announced a very severely injured, injured motorbiker. Now that was totally beyond my scope, so I called everybody in and all the other doctors who were available. And, well, when he came in, he had already passed. We couldn't do anything for him. And what you have to do then is... You have to examine the person thoroughly because you will be in front of the court and they will ask you where he was hit by the car and things like that or or whether he hit something else or what. And so first we searched for his papers before we undressed him and I found his identity card in one of these many motorbike pockets in his suit and I looked at it And I saw that he was born in the same year I was born in. We were both 25 years old. And I was driving the road where he had crashed two times a day to work. And I thought, whoa, this could have happened to me. It was the time before safety belts. And so it was like, I... I thought I was totally shocked and I realized in that moment um, that now I'm uh, stealing this line from Love in the Times of Cholera that death is not always, is not an always existing possibility, but an upcoming reality. Mm. And the next thought I had was, okay, So I don't even know who I am. I have to find out rather urgently. And that started the whole journey. And then I first, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. And I told my husband and he said, uh, he didn't know what to do, but I had an idea. I thought probably you have to meditate. I didn't know much about meditation. Maybe I had heard it somewhere. I wasn't into spiritual things at that point. But um, when I came home two weeks later, my husband, again after night shift, my husband said, hey, there is a meditation introduction course in the newspaper. There is an ad. Would you like to go there? And that's how it all started. So can you tell us about the fear that you experienced despite having years of meditation under your belt when you received a diagnosis of Mm -hmm. breast cancer? That was really mind-blowing. Now, 
in Buddhism, you always say there is the line you kind of remember every so often. This is not me. This is not mine. This doesn't belong to myself. So everything you can't control can't be yours. If it would be yours, you should be able to control it. So that was the first thing I did when, when I felt that my fear was really rising high. And I was, it actually, the fear started the moment I was on the subway. I had been to the um, breast cancer screening program in Germany. And they had called me back for a, an ultrasound. And I thought, yeah, well, they need to justify what they do because um, it is heavily discussed whether the screening makes any sense or not. And so I just went there, I didn't think a thing, that I could feel nothing. And so um, I was on the tube and I was rather bored. Since you're a medium, I'm telling you the story. Now, I always had a kind of inner guidance. And so because I was just bored, I just asked, hey, what do you think about this? And I heard this very stern voice saying, you have breast cancer and you will need to be treated. And in that moment, my fear set in. Fear, panic. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So despite all these years of meditation, the panic still set in, which I think is so important for people to hear because I think that there is this belief that if you just, again, meditate enough, that then you can somehow, and you talk about, about, spiritual illusions, I guess, or I would call it spiritual bypassing, that then you can avoid the real sort of human experience of fear, panic, anxiety, whatever it is. Well, meditating alone won't do it. You know, and then I said to myself, this is not me. This is not my body. (laughs) This isn't myself. I mean, this is just bananas to say such a thing. This is really spiritual bypassing. (laughs) Because, hey, um, it still felt like my body, it was not only bypassing, it was simply lying what I experienced, lying to what I experienced. And so it was as if all the archetypal fears around cancer from centuries poured out over me. It was, I, I couldn't believe it. And now from my psychotherapeutic work, I have a lot of tricks up my sleeve, how you can calm down yourself. Good luck in such a situation. (laughs) And so what did you do? How did you manage sort of those feelings? And what sort of spiritual quest did this then take you? So I, I didn't manage them at all. I simply felt them. I could do nothing else. I simply felt them. And they didn't stop. They didn't stop, not for a minute. Only the mornings when I woke up and there was, I still had my eyes closed. And there were these few moments, I always say, when uh, the things in the cloud hadn't downloaded yet. And I felt total at ease, light. I had no pain, still in the hospital. I had nearly no pain. And... And nothing had ever happened. And then all of a sudden, the knowledge crashed on me. You have breast cancer. And then, ah! <laughs> I, mm-hmm. uh, the fear was back again. And my blood pressure was 180 all the time. I never had high blood pressure. So it was like, oh. 
I didn't know what to do, but in the hospital, I realized that the spiritual search had brought me nowhere. If I still reacted with so much fear, I mean, what is your spiritual worth, uh, uh, search worth then? And so I thought, um, nah, this was a very nice, very exotic. I had a wonderful exotic journey with Japanese Zen masters in Indian gurus and all kinds of stuff. But um, it, I was done. I was done. It was as if I physically turned my back on my spiritual search and this exotic identity of a spiritual seeker. And it was just clear I need to find now. I had no idea how, because I had exhausted my means. I thought I pretty much know all kinds of directions how people say you can get enlightened, but nothing worked really. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed that when you're enlightened or awakened, you don't experience this fear any longer. Otherwise, what is it for? And so I, I well, I didn't know what to do. And uh, so I went home and um, between breast cancer surgery and there's always radiation afterwards when you are, um, when only the tumor is taking out, taken out. And so I had six weeks, so it would heal. And during that time, like two weeks into that time, I suddenly discovered um, while I was scrolling on Facebook, one of my friends had liked to post that the body is not ready for awakening. It was on the blog, The Awakened Dreamer by Laurie and Lothrian. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And I went there and on this, in this blog post, she had linked to a platform where they said, you can see through the self-illusion. Now, I've heard many people say many things about awakening and how you can do it. So, of course, I didn't believe the word. The self is this, this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. And so I went, uh, I looked at the dialogues. They had dialogues with voluntary guides, volunteer guides. And the seekers, um, the ones who were successful, um, so they were asked questions just simply about their, their actual experience like questions like so um move your hand like this turn it around flip it around palm up palm down now how is do who's doing this just look for it who's doing this and other questions like looking for the thinker or the entity that decides and controls as we think and um, that was very interesting, I thought. And then at some point, the dialogue flipped and the seeker had seen something I could not understand. And then it always took on the beauty of a Zen poem. It was very beautiful, but I couldn't follow. I didn't understand what they were talking about any longer. And I thought, hmm, something is definitely happening here. And then I thought, okay, if something is definitely happening here, do I really want it? That suddenly arose. This seems to be a deep shift. 
with the falling away of the thinking there is a me. Now, do I want that? Can I function without it? What about my relationship? Will it fall apart? Um, will I be able to function in the world? Drive a car and do things like that. And so, uh, and I was translating a book at that point. Will I still be able to translate this book? So, and then I thought, uh, well, I fall on my feet more than once on the spiritual search. I, I guess it will happen again if this goes wrong. And since I, uh, the radiation was coming up and I didn't know how long it would take, I thought, I don't know the book they have. They had a book with dialogues in it. And I downloaded it and, and just asked myself the questions that were asked in these dialogues. And it was the most fascinating time I've had since years. It was like, wow, I never asked myself such great questions. They are really on the point. And I usually I was sitting in some kind of waiting room for some kind of examination, and I just didn't mind at all. It was so fascinating. Uh, it was great. So... What are the questions? The seventh part of your seven steps to awakening, no. or are they separate? Um, the questions were the first step on the journey to awakening, and they were all around what is this I really tracked down. So I felt like a detective who was kind of following somebody everywhere, everybody everywhere, where the sense of me arose. I tried to condense what it was and it always kind of slipped away I couldn't grasp it really and so I thought this is very strange it's like like a bug a computer bug that gets automatically attached to files seeing turns into I see hearing into I hear and so forth doing into I do being afraid into I am afraid <laughs> Ah, so was so it really was the the self. Would you say it was the ego or what you could describe as the ego? Now the ego or the self is, is a structure. It's not just one thing. It's a kind uh, a house of cards which consists of several cards, which kind of keep each other up. And the seven steps deal with the cards, all cards, and then. Uh, like I was on page 20, there was this question, so does the self exist in any physical form or shape? And I thought, what a silly question, of course not. And in that, while I was thinking that sentence, I had a strong shift. It was like hitting a wall at a high speed, really high, but a soft wall, it didn't hurt. But and everything turned silent, all of a sudden, completely silent. And I saw with crystal clarity that there was no me. It was right in front of me. Mm. And never had been. And a few moments later, I felt so stupid. So stupid. How was I not able to see this for 40 years? It was really simple. So what are the seven steps to full awakening? Right. So the first step, the outer layer, you could say, 
of the onion that is the self-structure, the first step was this me that seems to be in control of everything. And it is such a relief when it falls away. Every mm -hmm. step is a relief when it falls away. The next step is the assumption, no longer what I am, but what I have. So it's that I have a kind of force that pushes me to pull closer what I like and push away what I don't like. The force mm. um, is called in the traditional scriptures desire and ill will. It's basically wanting and not wanting. We think we have this, that we that something forces us to go for it and say, hey, no, I don't want that, and start a, a heated discussion or whatever. Uh, but um, this actually doesn't exist. So there is a shift with that too when that is fully seen. So is it like I have a body? Like even that is that sort of what you're talking about? No, this is just or I have... this is just um, a, this feeling of a psychological mechanism that makes us react. Okay. So like okay. Uh, when somebody cuts in in front of us, or the queue um, in the grocery shop is moving really slow only because people have to deal with their lottery tickets <laughs> or something like that. And uh, the, with the body is the next step. So when that is seen through and what is there is no longer grasped and pulled closer or pushed away, all reactivity ceases. And that is so beautiful. The contentment is so sweet totally independent of the circumstances it's like i don't so like an observing ego no, like you're not, sort of no the observer is okay. already gone in the first step it's not observing it's just that no no reactions come up no emotional charge comes up it just doesn't happen so you're waiting in line and you're just there like if it takes forever it takes forever it's just it doesn't how matter it is. you have no it's just how it is. right okay right. so there's an acceptance of of things as they are yes right so that's the second step mm -hmm. the third okay. step is usually when we look around we see all kinds of objects or hear sounds and they seem to converge to us and we are in the kind of center of perspective, the subjective point of view. So the subject, this is not very personal. This is really more a functional point as the center of the perspective. So it feels like everything is around us and it's all flowing into this direction. All information come, comes together in here. And with assuming the subjects, the impression of borders around all objects comes in place. Now, objects here are everything that can be discerned, a thought, a feeling, sensations, sights, sounds, touch, taste, smells, everything, anything that can be discerned. And it seems to be separate from us too, not only amongst each other, but also separate from us. So, and then um, 
uh, we look for the subject. The subject is confirmed by something very interesting. When looking at something, we don't just look at something the view jumps back to ourselves, or the attention jumps back, not really the, the view. The view stays, but the attention jumps back and forth. And that can be clearly felt if you tune in. It's a very tiny eye movement that goes with it. And with this jumping back, the subject is confirmed as if it's needed to recognize what's out there. So by looking for what it is, this referring back, back lands on, it becomes clear that there is no subject either. No central point of view. So can you simplify that? Maybe it's not simple, but mm -hmm. can you simplify like what exactly that looks like in everyday life? Like similar to the grocery store analogy. So when the subject the, the belief that there is a subject is still in place. Everything seems separate. I'm separate from everything else. Um, the things I see are separate and have borders between them. And my thoughts are separate from me. My body is separate from me. Feelings are separate from me. And mm. everything is separate. I'm one of the separate things around. And this separation disappears when the sixth fetter falls. And with it, also the belief that the body is separated from everything else. So um, I don't experience the sense of a coherent body any longer. I do experience sensations like from sitting now or at my backrest, uh, but um, this is, these are the sensations that are actually experienced and usually we overlay a mental image of the body and that, and then we feel I'm feeling a body. Mm. I found that utterly fascinating because I had had a really heavy eating disorder and um, when the sense of the body, at first it disappeared partially, I woke up and I had no middle part of the body. And hmm. a few days later, everything was gone. I hadn't uh, anticipated that. It was quite surprising. But I realized in that moment, hey, that's why you always thought you were too fat. Because the image in the head doesn't change according to any number. It's always the same. I didn't, my um, perception was filtered by this image in the mirror. That's why people become anorectic. They don't see themselves as thin as they are and just bones and skin, but they see themselves as fat because of this mental overlay. Mm -hmm. So when that dissolved, you sort of, you moved more to awakening. Right. And then the So is that step four? Was that four? That is step one, two, three. That was step three. Three. Okay. Step okay. three. Then comes step four. In step four, the world as we know ends. So, Oof. yes. 
So we usually think there is a world outside of us in time and space made of matter, what we experience, right? Yeah, that is heavy stuff. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is not for cowards. I experienced so much fear on this journey. And uh, anyway, this, um, I had already thought about that a lot because you can access by logic that you don't experience a world outside of yourself. Like our eyes don't see a plant or a lamp they receive light waves. Our eyes don't see at all. They just receive light waves. And that then mm -hmm. gets turned into electrical currents and the retina and to the brain. Right. And there right. the image of the plant that's in front of me is created. Now, I would say my experience of the world is totally different to that of a bee or a dog or a cat. Because they mm, will mm -hmm. very likely, their brain will very likely produce a very different impression of the world because of their different sense mm -hmm. organs. So what we experience is always and only what our brain puts together. We cannot experience anything else. Right. We can never stick our head out of that to look what we are experiencing, whether something is right. in there or not. Because it's all being processed through the computer. Right. Basically. It's already processed. Right. 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 Yes. So it's not its own separate, it's, it's not the experience of the mind per se, it's the experience of the mind processing through the brain. Or of the result of the mind having processed through the brain. I don't think we can experience the mind processing. I think that's not really possible. And then, um, so I had already thought through it a lot because I found that very fascinating. Um, so I was totally unprepared. Um, but it's kind of mind-boggling to realize that, um, yes, that is not just a nice idea. I actually can experience that. And it is true. I have no proof that there is a world outside of me. I think it all together. It's thought, it's built out of thoughts, basically. So that, that's the fourth step, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And in the fifth, um, after this step, um, the state is very strange. It's a kind of limbo. Everything looks very flat. Um, there is, the 2D vision is no longer functioning because it's an overlay too. And also kind of more black and white, like an old TV. And... Um, it's this what Zen says, mountains are no longer mountains, these phase. And then the next step is um, there is still a sense of me, a very subtle sense. It's the last bit of the me and it's ungraspable. It's like an itch you can't scratch. It's for me a taste. It was a taste for others. It feels like a scent or a cloud, a wisp of cloud. Some people say just it's a familiar feeling. That's me. This is me. 
And then you try to find out how this is confirmed. How do you know that there is a me? How, what kind of proves it? This is a very subtle examination. And the good thing is, as you go through the steps, the ability to see the subtleties grows with it. So how does one go through the steps without being faced with, with a disease of some sort? Like, is this something that a lay person can just, I mean, everybody's a lay person, but, you know, someone without facing that imminent fear of death or illness can, can do? Absolutely. I don't have anybody amongst my clients who has any urgent situation, like being sick or anything like that. So do they find this through meditation? Like, how do you help people get to these experiences? Um, no, they don't find it through meditation. Though meditation helps to focus. Um, they find it by answering my questions, just like I described it in the first step with the questions. I have questions, okay. special questions for each step, which I also tailor individually. And... By exploring their own experience for the answer, they find what they're looking for. Uh, the self kind of thins out, it weakens, and in the end, it's fully gone. Mm. And so what types of transformations in people's lives do you see? Um, the most important step in that is the second one, no longer reacting. Because okay. that makes for so much peace everywhere, in the family, in your job, on the road, when you stop, when you walk and somebody crosses your path or bike and somebody opens the door, that's a very uh, uh, often cited complaint. And uh, it just calms everything down. And And how do you see... Oh, sorry, go ahead. And it doesn't mean that people can no longer respond. They can and they will. Actually, they tend to lean in more than before. But they can respond without emotional charge and usually can take mm. the good of... Uh, con can look for the good of all concerned in the discussion and not only for, no, I don't want this and why do you think? <laughs> They don't have to do that. They just listen to the argument and think about it and respond to what they think is right. But they don't have this emotional charge that they must be right and nobody else and things like that. And how do you see it as different from the work of therapy? I mean, you were a psychoanalyst. So, I mean, you really, you got into the, the depths and the doldrums with people. Yes. Um, <laughs> I had 1,500 I know, hours. I, <laughs> you too? Oh, my God. Wow. So uh, of psychoanalytic, of your own yes, psychoanalytic right. work? And you Holy won't cow. believe how much I still discovered, how much wasn't unearthed yet. So on this journey, and all emotional unfinished stuff will come up with the ego weakening or the defense mechanisms weaken as well and they will surface that's why i ask people if they have trauma please deal with it first because we had some people for whom it came mm. up very uh 
unexpectedly because they had forgotten about it, happened they were very young, and they had a really bad time. So it's good. Because they didn't have appropriate defense mechanisms in Any place longer, to deal with the gone, trauma once right? you... Yeah. And they have to just face all the feelings straight on without any muffler. And that is really hard. And they did it because at that point, you're also very trained in experiencing your feelings. But um, it's still, uh, I prefer that people not have to go through such a tough time. Yeah, and just for my listeners to understand, one of the things when you're trained psychoanalytically, I'm trained psychodynamically, that you don't strip all of people's defenses away at once. It's like putting someone naked in the freezing cold when they have nothing to then use to protect themselves. So we work very purposefully in how we think about helping to take people's dysfunctional defense mechanisms away from them to help them deal with their, and and to teach them to deal with their emotions in different ways. So I think that um, I understand your point. Like if you're just stripping them naked and sending them into the cold, that could be completely emotionally overwhelming. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to this concept. Your book, when is your book coming out? I hope in July, I'm still in the editing process, which isn't my fault. Uh, but, you know, I always think, oh, I have to add this. <laughs> I need this, need, the book needs this, and then I'll start to write again. And so, but I decided now I really need to finish this and not uh, keep adding something or taking something away um, so that people can actually read it. So the book is called Finding Awakening. And where can people find your work if they're interested? I have a website, which is also called Finding Awakening, www.findingawakening.com. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for walking us through the seven steps to, to awakening. Thank you so much. It was a joy talking to you. You too. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? wondering what comes next and what it all means, head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.